Okay, we're reading Exodus 20, 13. You shall not murder. Father, I ask you that you help us with clarity. This word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our paths. Your word of God is the key to the kingdom of heaven. It is the comfort in our affliction. It is the shield and sword against Satan. It is the school of all wisdom. It is the glass wherein we behold your face. It is the testimony of your favor. And it is the only food and nourishment for our souls. I ask you as we give attention to your word, you open our eyes that we might behold the wondrous things from your law. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. And God's people said. Brothers and sisters, it is an interesting thing, this command. It says, you shall not murder. It is the sixth commandment. And what it says, it reflects a general Old Testament teaching regarding the sanctity of life. I want you to understand something, though, from the get-go. The verb used here is not the same word that is used in the King James Version, which has brought about the majority of the confusion. The King James Version says, Thou shalt not kill. But that's not the word. The Hebrew word that is used here is the word murder. And this is the first time it is used in the Bible. This is its first mention. Now we do know that Cain killed Abel. But that's not the word murder that was used there. There is another word. This word murder is used the very first time ever in Scripture with this commandment. So we could say that all other views of the word murder come from this commandment, from the interpretation uh, theory of the law of first mention. This is the first mention of it. So anything dealing with the word of murder goes immediately back to the sixth commandment where it is first used. It, it refers to killing a person and it is never used in regards to animals. It means to kill a person. This word never means to kill an animal. It is not the most general word for taking of a human life. This word does not mean the same thing as slaughter in war, nor does it mean the same thing as judicial imposition of the death penalty. This word specifically is the word manslaughter. Manslaughter. The murder of another human being. 
All the renderings of murder reflect its range and meanings as well. And the frequent use of this word is found mostly in Numbers 35. And it shows it covers accidental as well as premated acts of manslaughter. Murder was one of the earliest indications of evil that the fall had introduced into human society when Cain slew his brother Abel, which is the word that is used, slew. The havoc that has been wrought by murder and violence in the pre-flood society led to the imposition of the death penalty in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. A genocidal death penalty nonetheless. The imposition of judicial execution. The sanctity of human life requires that those who, are, who unwarrantly, unwarrantably take life should lose their own lives. This is the meaning of the word. And only in this way can society be kept from disintegrating under the pressures of lawlessness. The New Testament even recognizes this in Romans chapter 13 verse 4 that the ruler is divinely authorized to bear the sword to bring punishment on wrongdoers. And so again, the command states a basic principle with far-reaching implication. The act of murder is wrong. The act of murder is wrong. But Jesus shows us something in the fifth chapter of Matthew in verses 21 through 26 where He shows us the inner attitudes towards one neighbor can manifest themselves in committing murder within the heart. One's attitude towards one neighbor, towards neighbor can be one of murder, a violation of the sixth commandment. We read that before we prayed. So it is an in, and two, it comes from the envious desire for what we do not have. James 4 verse 2. It's rooted in lust, envy. So let me show you this first as I have opened this up to what we're dealing with. Let me show you that when he speaks of this word here in the commandment, that here in the sixth commandment, to break it is something wholly different than any other breaking of the law. Because to murder is both a crime and a sin. It is both a crime against humanity and it is a sin against God. Now this is important that you understand this. But it, and the reason it's important that you understand it is because of the attribute of the sanctity of life. Every society, for the most part, that has ever existed counts murder, adultery, and theft as forbidden acts. Those happen to be the sixth the seventh, and next commandment. Murder, adultery, and theft. 
And to some extent here, it contains nothing new except that it is unique from all societies, except that of God's covenant people. Because it is unique, because it makes making the pro- prohibition a fundamental, abstract, eternal principle that, tra- listen to me, that transcends circumstances, conditions, or definitions. You know why? Because we bear the image of God. The Imago Dei. There was no distinction in the Old Testament of those crimes committed against people and sins committed against God. So I would write that down. In the Old Testament, there was no distinction between crimes committed against people and sins committed against God. And so what this tells us is this. The origin, the origin of this social prohibition, this law, this commandment, is originated in the will of God. God says you shall not murder. That originated with Him. That did not originate with man. That originated with Him. And you think about it, well, how can that, ad- be admin- how can that originate with Him? Because it does. They made no separation between the commit, committing a crime against a person and a sin against God. I'll give you an, ex, an example from another commandment that's not to be broken. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Now, do you remember when Joseph was in the home of Potiphar's wife? What did Joseph say? How can I do this thing against God? You say, now I understand. Because the command originates with God. And that's the proof I want you to understand. There's no distinction here. God has determined the boundary of life-taking. He has drawn the lines. If one is going to take life, it has to be within his boundary. Otherwise, it is not just a crime against the person. It's a crime against God. Jesus Christ narrows the boundary even further when He says, if you do this, hate your own brother and call him a fool. You're not only going to be litigated, you're not only going to be brought before the council, you're not only going to be litigated, you're going to die and you will be subject to hell. He makes this statement now, I have up here with me, can a murderer go to heaven? I'm going to share with you about that in the end. But it's absolutely essential that you understand this. This concept originates with God. You say, well, that's not in doubt, James. He's the one that gave the Ten Commandments. Well, this is just to further emphasize this commandment is birthed out of His will. It is His will that we do not commit manslaughter. Okay? And so we can say it plainly this way. Look over in 
Genesis chapter... Well, just listen to me. We don't have time. In Genesis chapter 5, verse 1, we are reminded that Adam was in the likeness of God. In Genesis 5, verse 1, I'm going to deal with this same subject when I do adultery, so I don't want to go far into it. And in verse 3 that follows, it says, had a son in his own likeness, in his own image. God speaking of Adam as a son in his own likeness, in his own image in Genesis 5, verse 3. So the image of God which begins using this term in Genesis 1.26, continues down the generations, defaced and diluted as it is today, undoubtedly still continuing. It is for this reason that Paul teaches that all fatherhood in Ephesians 3.15 derives from God Himself. Now I want you to think about that. If it was my objective this morning to not preach the text, but to preach about abortion, that's where I would go. But that's not not the mandate for the text. It's what does the text mean? There is so much confusion on the text. The first confusion comes from the confusing of the word killing with the word murder. The word is manslaughter. It is nothing that is done to any animal. It's not done in a time of war, and it is not done with judicial execution. Even if the judiciary gets it wrong and executes an innocent person, it is not considered killing. It is judicial execution. And God's grace is sufficient. Now... (laughs) I promise you the person riding the lightning doesn't feel that way. But that is not what we are concerned with. We are concerned with what God thinks. And so I want you to hear this. In Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, it makes clear this fact. Humankind bears the divine image of God. And that is the reason why murder is both a crime and a sin. Even though the angels are created higher than us, we will judge the angels. God has not redeemed the angels. We are the ones, as the old country song goes, we are the ones who hold the song of the redeemed. Only we can sing that. Now everybody can sing holy, holy, holy in heaven. The angels can and the seraphim and the cherubim and all that, but they can't sing the song of the redeemed. Amen? And so let me then move and transition. I want you to see we've exposed the confusion, the difference between killing and murder Two. We have shown that murder is both a crime and a sin. Now, listen to this. It is simply this idea. What are the duties that are required in the sixth commandment? You see the phrase, one, two, three, four words. Thou shalt not kill in the King James, or as it says here in the New American Standard, you shall not murder. 
And you say, all right, well, what is there for me to learn from this? Well, here are the duties required of the Sixth Commandment. I want you to listen, and I will send this to you at the end of church. And all of this, everything I'm telling you has a footnote with a Bible verse. So just listen. Just write on your notes, what are the duties required of the Sixth Commandment? This is used to tell you this is using the whole counsel of God's Word in relation to murder. All right? Don't try to write it down. Just say, email's coming. The duties required in the Sixth Commandment are all careful studies and lawful endeavors. Listen, here it is. To preserve life. But it's interesting, the first thing I'm going to give you. Here it is. Are you ready? This, this kind of blew me out of my chair. To preserve the life of ourselves. To preserve the life of ourselves and others by resisting all thoughts and purposes, subduing all passions, and avoiding all occasions, temptations, and practices which tend to the unjust taking away of life of any. By just defense, therefore, against violence, patience, bearing the hand of God, quietness of mind, cheerfulness of spirit, sober use of meat, drink, physic, physique, excuse me, sleep, labor, and recreation, by charitable thoughts, love, compassion, meekness, gentleness, kindness, peaceable, mild and, and courteous speech and behavior, forbearance, readiness to be reconciled, patient hearing and forgiving of iniquities and injuries and requiring, and requiring good for evils, comfort, comforting and succoring the distress and protecting and defending the innocent. You say, where in the name of all that is good did you find that? In the whole counsel of God. You see, my beloved, the issue here is none of you are murderers that I can tell outwardly. But we all lack in some places out of that list I just gave you. And all of those are seeds to murder. And when I send this to you in a moment after church, it'll come to your email. You're going to see all the Bible verses that this goes to, and you can look at all of it in context and see where it has to do with preserving life. And it is so against our nature as Americans, particularly, because we don't like to be selfish outwardly. The truth is we're very selfish inwardly. But one would not say it can, it, that this concept of murder is the preservation of our own life. It is. Why? Because you are special. You're absolutely special, made in the image of God and called according to His purposes. He's brought you here to be under the preaching of the full counsel of God's Word. That you even get preaching in the hymns that you don't know. You get preaching in the prayers that are thought after in writing. You get preaching in every bit of it. Why? Because He is Christianizing all of us Christians. He who began a good work is faithful to complete it. So the very first place to preserve life is our life. Amen? Amen. 
But then there are sins. Number the next point, write this down. What are the sins that are forbidden by the sixth commandment? What are the sins? We looked at the misconception between killing and murder. Two, we've looked that murder is both a crime and a sin. Number three, we see what duties are required of the sixth commandment. Number four, what sins are forbidden, for, forbidden by the sixth commandment. Well, that's easy. Murder. No. Again, using the whole counsel of God. The full counsel of God. I will send this to you also. The sins, listen, the sins forbidden in the sixth commandment are all taking away the life of ourselves. There it is again. What would you call that? Suicide. All taking away the life of ourselves or of others, except, listen, in case of, ju- of public justice, lawful war, or necessary defense. Did you know? I didn't know this until I studied this. And I'm being very serious. I'm, I'm trying to be very serious when I preach to you because our time is valuable. But I grew up in a town where that if you know somebody came and tried to steal your car and you ran outside and shot them, the police would show up and drag the body back into the house. That's just kind of how it was. Now, when I took business law at Texas Tech and I had Dr. Schutzberger as my, my, uh, my business law professor, it's my second semester of my junior year, so all of us that were in there that had not flunked out yet, uh, you know, we're pretty serious. I asked him that question. He said, no, I'm afraid you'd, you'd be going to jail. You can't do that in Texas. I said, you can do it in Andrews County. He said, no, you can't. <laughs> but there is lawful self-defense. Now, why would there be lawful self-defense? Because your first duty is to take care of who? Yourself. Now, if you think about the sixth commandment in the context of how you treat your body with what you put into it, I wonder if it applies. I'm not going to go there, okay? But I wonder if that would apply. There is a conviction to me. That's part of the conviction on the 102 pounds that has been lost in, in 25 months. That's part of the condition of it. I don't have a lot of credibility when I cannot control something. And I still have a problem. And you can still pray for me. But I have to take care of myself. There are people that depend on me. My greatest privilege, last week, I, I told this story to someone because I'm about finished. I told this story, my, I told it to Rick. My family knows my favorite movie is Chariots of Fire. One of my heroes is Eric Little, the Scotsman, who was a missionary's child, uh, a missionary family to China, and he could run like the wind. And in the Olympics, of 19, I believe it's the 1924 Olympics, He had his race, and it was on the Lord's day, and he would not run. And the British Olympic Committee came to him and said, what do you mean you won't run? And he's juxtaposed against another man named Abrams, who is a Jew. He is seeking the glory of man, and Eric Little is seeking the glory of God. 
And Abrams runs his race on Sunday and Little runs his race on another day that he's not even trained for and he wins. But he's in the highlands of Scotland and his sister who is a precocious woman always wanting to be about the study and the ministry goes to her brother and says, Eric, but what, what of the mission we have in China and mom and dad? And he says, oh, Jenny, Jenny, you worry about too much. God will bring his people to the Lord. But as for me, in this season I must run, because God has made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. That's what it feels like preaching to you. When Little would cross the line, he would lean his chest forward like this and cock his head back. He died in China, a prisoner of the Japanese. And if you go there to where he was, my good friend Johnny McGregor has been there. The Chinese government has erected a larger-than-life statue of Eric Little for the contribution that he made to the people of China. If you've never read about Eric Little, L-I-D-D-L-E, I encourage you to do so. He is one of my heroes. We were talking about what is forbidden. The neglecting or the withdrawal of the lawful and necessary means of preservation of life. Starving yourself. Okay? That's a place to start. Sinful anger, hatred, envy, desire of revenge, all excessive passions, distracting cares, immoderate words, oppression, quarreling, striking, wounding, and whatsoever else tends to be destruction and bring destruction to the life of others. So you see the duties that are commanded and then the sins that are forbidden. So one might then ask this question. What if a person has committed murder? Can that person be saved. This arises out of a conversation at Einstein's brother's bagels down in Louisville not too long ago with a dear brother who was in church where the pastor, who is not the pastor, he is, uh, the church doesn't have a pastor, he's the hired preacher, stood up and announced to the congregation of the world that you cannot be a Christian and be a homosexual. And that began a discussion between my friend Johnny and myself because there's something that does not add up to a statement like that. And so in the course of studying and being a Berean to look at to see what is there truthful about what this man has said with is my thing. It, there is also, I hear often and more not, if a person has committed murder, they cannot be saved either. And so I have done a little bit of study, and I came to a conclusion to give you, uh, and it has, and, and this study, incidentally, is based upon the determination of God regarding marriage. 
in regards to marriage, this question is answered about can a murderer be saved or can a homosexual? And so, let me just read it to you like this. Those born with a physical disorder of sex development are created in the image of God and have dignity and worth equal to all other image bearers. They are acknowledged by our Lord Jesus in His words about eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb. This would deal also with the blind, the mentally retarded, the Down syndrome, that with a club foot, a cleft palate, With all others, they are welcome as faithful followers of Jesus Christ and should embrace their biological sex insofar as it may be known. But it is denied that the ambiguities related to a person's biological sex renders one incapable of living a fruitful life in joyful obedience to Christ. In other words, they say because they are the way they are, we deny that they are not able to live a joyful, obedient life to Christ. They can and should. We also affirm self-conception of male and female should be defined by God's holy purposes in creation and redemption as revealed in Scripture, whereas adopting a homosexual or transgendered self-conception is consistent with God's holy purpose in creation and redemption is completely foreign to the Bible, and thus we deny it. So then the question is this. What of those people in such a way? Well, here is the answer. It is is sinful to approve of homosexual immorality and transgenderism and that such approval constitutes an essential departure from Christian faithfulness and witness. But we deny that the approval of homosexual immorality or transgenderism is a matter of moral indifference about which otherwise faithful Christians should agree to disagree. We should all agree that it is not right. And it is our duty, consequently, to speak in love at all times and to speak to them in a manner that honors Christ and them made in the image of God. And we affirm, consequently, listen, because here it is, that, listen, the grace of God gives both merciful pardon and transforming power. And that this pardon and power enables a follower of Jesus to put to death sinful desires and to walk in manner worthy of the Lord. We deny that the grace of God in Christ is insufficient to forgive all sexual sin and to give power for holiness to every believer who feels drawn into sexual sin. Translation, the salvation of Jesus Christ is sufficient enough to save whom He chooses to save. Whether they're a homosexual, 
transgendered, they're murderers. It makes no difference. If He chooses to save, they will be saved. And that is where that brother was wrong. And, and unfortunately, so wrong that this document that I read to you is what is known as the Nashville Statement. And it is signed by the man that he is his greatest follower. The man he follows signed this declaration. And yet he stood in the pulpit to say if you're a homosexual, you can never be saved. That's not in the Scripture. But what is the basis of it? Why? Because of the image of God. Every person conceived bears the image. Did you know that science has proven this to be true? That at the moment of conception, there's a living sperm and there's a living egg or a living zygote. And at the moment of conception, when the living zygote and the living sperm connect and two become one, they have done this under radio microscopy and they have seen that there is a transformation or a transfer of ions. Both of ions coming from the placenta into this new thing and ions flying out of, and it has been recorded that there is a spark that takes place. Even the Greek mythologists and those long ago spoke of a spark, just as the Stoics spoke about one who would come, as is mentioned in, in Acts chapter 19, not knowing who they were speaking about. God had already written on their hearts some truth of life. Now we are where we are in our society today. We are a society based upon law and our laws are based upon British common law. And British common law and our law simply says that a person that is pregnant with a baby in utero is one entity, not two. That's the common law and that is the law of America. And those are our laws. That's the law. But I will tell you this, the Assyrians, which predate the British by millennia, knew that a woman that was pregnant had a baby in her belly. And what made the Assyrians so notorious is that when they come and sacked your city, they lined your pregnant women up, and the first thing they did was open their bellies pull the baby out, behead it in front of the mother, then poke the eyes out of said mother and kill her in front of the father. There was no question to them that there were not one but two entities. The reason British common law looks at it the way it does is science was not at the place to see it, but science has now caught up. And we are no longer a British Commonwealth. We are the United States of America. And the reality of it is, is that what can be more innocent than that which is in the womb of a woman? We'll say, well, abortion is legal in this country, so it's a lawful killing. 
not in the eyes of God. It is murder. It is manslaughter. It will take legislation to change it. I do not have any hope that it will happen. But if the culture changes, it will. If the people of God will hold up their Bible instead of their pickets and their, and their signs, let's go, Brandon, if they'll stop doing that and stand up and hold their Bibles and, and deal with people graciously by the hand and kindly, there will be a change that will take place. But we will always be at war because of this fundamental issue. The very thing the Sixth Commandment teaches us is our value. And there is where the problem is because most people in the West do not understand who they are, what they are, whose they are, and how valuable they are. Men don't know what men are. Girls don't know what girls are. They find no worth in themselves except the opinions of other people. The sixth commandment holds it all together because it says, oh no, you are valuable. You're so valuable that your life matters. And that's the proof that we shouldn't mess with the womb because that life matters too. And so, brothers and sisters, I'll send you these other things for you this afternoon, but I think that that may just be about all we need to understand from the Sixth Commandment. We need to value each other. And even more so, we need to value each other here in our church and especially those of our faith that can recite the Apostles' Creed, those who believe in an Orthodox Christianity. That's the very beginning of it, not the end of it, that Apostles' Creed.